WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. What the soap? WTS and Company in Prattsville for soaps and lotions made on site, locally handcrafted candles, pottery, jewelry, art, and gifts, and a hand-picked selection of books on homesteading, nature, and local history. WTS and Company in the Prattsville Plaza and online at whatthesoap.com. O'Connell and Aronowitz, attorneys at law since 1925. For legal representation from the routine to the more complex, committed to the fair treatment of all individuals. Family law, wills, trusts, and estate planning, litigation accidents and personal injury, constitutional law, Medicaid planning, elder care, and health law, criminal defense, not-for-profit and entity formation, commercial financing. O'Connell and Aronowitz, Attorneys at Law, 518-462-5601, 518-462-5601, oalaw.com. Hi, I'm Joyce St. George, host of Music Matters, Friday morning from 10 to noon, right here on WIOX Roxbury, community radio live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable Channel 20, and WIOXradio.org. Okay, you're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, NTC Cable TV Channel 20 on the campus of SUNY Delhi at 107.5 FM, worldwide at WIOXradio.org and on any mobile device FM radio app. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? Things are okay. How are you? 
All right. I think it's uh, been a while since you and I have been on. I know. You were out one or two times, and then I was out one or two times, and now here we are. Yeah. Gary thinks we're um, he and I are avoiding you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Gary, I'm not avoiding you at all. Yeah. Gary Mead, uh, every third Wednesday of the month, we have him on uh, talk about a different Catskills tree. But uh, So what have you been up to? Um, this past weekend, I actually did a little overnight backpack trip that was, you know, completely planned. So we did it anyway, but holy cow, was it hot. No kidding. Where'd um, you go again? Oh, you went around your house, right? Oh, no. You don't have to no. say where. You don't have to say Oh, no, we hit a high peak, man. So it was kind of fun. We we Actually, we were walking a ridge system right around 3,400 feet or so was the average elevation of that ridge for almost 10 miles. Climbed up one side, ridged out. And then it slowly descended down into the valley below. And uh, 10 miles later, we ended up at like 27, 2,500 feet. And then we dropped down back to the road. Cool. But uh, we were turkey hunting. We were, thought it would be something different to do. It just arose from a, you know, a dinner question. Like, are there turkeys higher than, you know, the valley bottom? Yeah. Let's go find out. All we'll right. go for a walk and hear, see if we hear a gobble. No, didn't hear any gobbles up there. But. So you think... There's there's not as many maybe. Well, we're also in a spot that we're, we're trying to maximize the trip and length yeah. and hike, and it was born more than just turkey hunting. So uh, I don't think the turkey population was that high where we went. But what was cool to see is that up that high as of Sunday morning, um, at that elevation, the the black cherry was just leafing out. The the American beech just broke bud. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the trout lilies had not flowered yet versus down in the valley below where we left from. Everything was almost fully leafed out pretty much everywhere we were, and trout lilies were done flowering. And Oh, yeah. Completely different world, 1,000 feet above it. Yeah, when I used to be a ranger uh, years ago on Giant Ledge, that's 3,200 feet. Memorial Day would be fully leafed out. Mm. Memorial, it took the Memorial Day. Yep. You know, the two years I was doing it. I mean, it, it fluctuates year to year. Yeah, so, I mean, we were 10 days before Memorial Day. So. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, different world up there. I did a little hiking. I uh, just went up a stream with a friend and, uh, you know, looked at one of those tan bark shanties that was that burnt down from the 1800s and stuff cool. like that, yeah. Did you do any metal detecting? No, no. We just walked up to the falls and back. But uh, Paul, he's been on the show before. He's a wealth of information about bark roads. You know, used to take the bark out for hemlock tanning. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I always learn something from Paul. Awesome. Yeah. But tonight's show is uh, clear cutting versus land clearing. I, you know, we did this show. This was show number 10. 10. I think 10 or 15. So 2007. Or 10. I'm sorry, 10. 2010. Wow. 12 years. It was the first year. Yeah. How did we go 12 years without bringing this up again? Well, and the show was just on clear cutting and the benefits thereof. And a lot of people are probably listening to this being like, benefits of clear cutting? Are you insane? But yes. And the problem is, and I've been hearing this from members when I go to their properties, and I read the paper, and towns are talking about you know regulating clear cutting and whatnot. And, and I shake my head, John. You know? Yeah. Man. That's not what clear-cutting is. So it gets confused, clear-cutting, uh, with, with another land use called land clearing. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. All right? Yeah, I totally concur. I hear that repetitively, multiple times a week. Yeah. So I wrote an article on it. It's not out yet. But um, 
I based the show off of the article in a way. But, you know, there's always – within every industry, I'm sure there's something that people shake their head at, right, that they hear repeated over and over again that is, you know, they wish people knew more about. And I feel like clear-cutting for me is one of those things, mm-hmm. right? Right. Like if you're a dentist, maybe it's like people not flossing or drinking coffee and tea and staining their teeth. You know, if you're a car mechanic, maybe it's like, man, why won't these people change their oil filter with the oil, you know? Right? I don't know. I'm just making it up. I'm not a mechanic. Right. Sure, I, there's got to be something <laughs> like that in every, every right. industry. Right? Like a deer hunter. What would they say? I don't know. Um, play the wind. Why are you sitting there and not thinking about the wind? No wonder you don't see a deer. They smell you and run. Right. Uh, that's probably what I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, arborists um, would, would be, you know, people planting trees too close to one another next to the house. Yeah, don't plant that. It's going to get huge. It has poor root systems. It will right. blow over and hit your house. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, arborists need to stop getting so mad about that because then, you know, it's like job security, man. People are going to get pissed that I said that. But, <laughs> son, but, you know, if an arborist is in his 40s and he has a son who's four years old, I'm thinking by the time he's my age, to be cutting that tree, cutting you that just tree out for a lot of money. <laughs> you know? So stop complaining. Yeah, okay. All right? Yeah, no. Not that good of a thing to say. <laughs> I don't know. What else? You got anything else, things that you find out there that people wish they knew from your perspective in forestry or wildlife man- management or arboriculture, going on consultations or whatnot? Well, I mean, yeah, so something we preach all the time. There's a reason to cut any tree at any time. I mean, not that it has to be cut, but there's, you can usually find a reason. And whether that's you know for the benefit of the forest or some other, other reason, it's more about your goals and your future aspirations for the property right yeah you know maybe um a forest of uh that's young is not in your goals and you want to let it age out yeah or vice versa so um and that could be completely different than your neighbor's goals. so it's okay to cut a tree um but yeah so this whole clear cutting thing is i think (laughs) when ryan and i get to a property that happens a lot someone who maybe uh just bought it and just got first first plot of land maybe they've ever owned and they'd say you know we don't want to cut anything we don't want to we don't want to change anything we don't want to clear cut well, i get that sometimes i get I'm not that gonna too. clear cut the forest just want to cut a few trees which i'm going to talk about later on yeah they say that too um but what well one one situation that i ran into that sticks out to me is they, they just bought it just moved here and they said i want it i want it to be exactly the way it is for as long as i own it yeah, I said, well, you got to cut a lot of trees down in order to make it stay the same. And they backpedaled and said, what? Oh uh, yeah. I said, well, you're you're at a pretty intermediate stage here where it was like some birch, some aspen, uh, pole-sized red oak, some maple, all mixed together. So you got a pretty cool forest type right now that you can take in any direction, and to keep it the same as what it is right now, it would take intensive cutting. Why? Because some of those species I just mentioned are going to age out and and uh, get shaded out, and other ones are going to be continually trying to take over. So keeping that happy medium of keeping it the same is just not going to happen. No doubt. No doubt, yeah. So, yeah, some trees are just shade intolerant, right? And they can't take it. A lot of fruit and nut trees. So a common misperception in forestry is the misuse of the term clear-cut. And tonight's talk is going to focus on two things surrounding that misperception. One, 
its definition. What it is and what it ain't. Ain't's a word now in the dictionary, John. Mm. So take that. Don't try to c- correct my grammar. And two, in its scope, meaning how often it occurs. So okay. Don't give away anything about the scope. Okay. All right. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Tonight's topic is clear-cutting versus land clearing. So let's define what clear-cutting is. So after reading over many town or municipal comprehensive plans and zoning ordinances, I mean, if you really want to read some good stuff, John, you got to read some of these town comprehensive plans. <laughs> I've seen some language. Trust really me. exciting. <laughs> Use words like rustic, rural charm. All that good stuff, you know? And then they use stuff like clear-cutting, you know, sometimes in the zoning ordinances. But anyway, clear-cutting is often confused with land clearing. So land clearing is where woody vegetation is removed for the foreseeable future. What would be some examples of that? Altering what the landscape's going to be completely, like changing it to, you know, uh, a parking lot. Yeah, pasture. pasture. Pasture's land clearing. Yep. Those farmers get away with everything, man. Nice. I mean, I'm being a little snarky, but, you know, a guy goes and cuts some trees, and usually vegetation grows right back. It may not be what you want, but something will fill the space and the void, <laughs> right? Farmers land clear, and there's no vegetation coming back but grass, which is what they want. I don't blame them, but I'm just saying... They don't go after the farmer. They go after that, that logger out there cutting. But there is a difference. And usually – it shouldn't matter when it comes to zoning because land clearing usually means, I think, building inspector, right? That's a site work. That's putting in a house, stuff like that. Clear cutting shouldn't involve a building inspector. It should be more of like a forester, maybe a wildlife manager, maybe a forest ecologist. Maybe even the Audubon Society, which we'll get into, right? Mm-hmm. They love clear cuts now. Yes. They love them. Yes. Can't get enough of them. Yes. Why? Oh, you're a wildlife guy. Why? Because we've kind of had this show multiple times before, but you know, maybe we have too much of a good thing where you know, 100 years ago, New York State's forests, well, we lacked forest. We were more than... More than 50% cleared, more like 75% cleared, or more in some yeah. areas, nearly 100% in the river valley bottoms all around. And uh, some, the whole slew of wildlife species, including the birds, that need the old forest types to thrive, well, declined with that. So what did we do? We put some forest into preserved land. We let them age out, let them grow, become old. And what came back? The wildlife species that needed that. But... Did we have too much of a good thing? I don't know where that happy medium lies, but Audubon is openly stating that, yes, uh, about 10% of forests should be young. 10%? That's a lot. 10% is a lot of cutting, yeah. yeah. Ten, 10 acres of 100. One acre of your 10. Imagine right. imagine having 10 acres of woodlot and one of it should be cleared. Yeah, right? we definitely don't have that. No way. So, um, so yeah. yeah, Audubon's trying to bring back some of those young forest birds that are now in decline. The, the, the tables have turned. It's flip-flopped. The old forest-type birds are doing well. Yeah, amazing. And a lot of people don't realize, um, when you look at the history of upstate New York, really any probably rural northeastern area, when these places were cut, it was not to drive the timber industry. 
they had plenty of supply. Yeah. Um, really never re- ran out of timber. Prices went up, as far as I've read, and never had a timber shortage in America that I know of. Um, but when it was cleared, they didn't know what to do with the trees. In fact, at first, I think it was sold as charcoal back to England, the old country. And, you know, it's, it, they had all they could do just to get rid of this material. So it wasn't for the timber industry. It was really to make room for for livestock, for grass, you know. So, I mean, like I said, um, big misperception I get out there is that it was, you know, it was all cleared for tanning. Hmm. No way. As soon as they cut those hemlock trees, many of them never left the woods, the, the, the trees. Yeah. They just took the bark out. And what happens, especially back then, they probably had less of a browse issue. Stuff just grew immediately. I mean, that's what John Burroughs is talking about when he's, ta- when he's eating blackberries um, over by Peekamoose or Sly Mountain. And uh, after the tanners had been through, the blackberries are grown. A shade intolerant, you know, plant. Yep. So stuff grew up right away. And um, it wasn't like land clearing that keeps it down. So anyway, clear cutting is a legitimate silvicultural practice. And what is silviculture? Silviculture is the art and science of tending trees. I, you know, I, I, think, I think his name's David Smith. He wrote the book on silviculture. Really good book if you like silviculture. And uh, it's kind of, it was textbook in school. But he calls it applied ecology. I'm sure others do too. But I really like that because silviculture really is the application of ecology. It's, it's ma- the manipulation of sunlight. And it's something cool that humans get to do that almost no other species gets to do except for maybe a beaver uh, via chainsaws, chemicals, or fire. And, you know, that's kind of, to me, the forest connection that humans have is that we have thumbs and we got that brain that can figure out fire and spread it and manipulate vegetation and foster plants that are shade intolerant, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and it influences not just shade intolerant plants like blackberry, blueberry, high bush blueberry, low bush blueberry, chestnut, oak, raspberries, black raspberry, red raspberry. Also, the obviously they're younger in age and size. Size matters with 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 uh, wildlife. You know, if you just have mature trees, only wildlife species that can live in large trees are going to be there. Um, some species need small plants, right? Like grouse. Grouse need a mixture, I would think, right? Grouse, actually, grouse life cycle need is a wide variety of things. But yeah. where they thrive is when there's a mix and it comprises of a. A lot of young forests where there's high stem density. Not so. Doesn't really matter what species, but they need that cover of high stem density, like ten thousand stems per acre. Really? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. grouse is on decline throughout North America. I would assume mm-hmm. it is in New York for sure. Definitely. Another species would be woodcock. Um, a lot of ground nesting songbirds, right? Yep. I mean, I look at where I live. Um, I have some trees planted, and it kind of mimics not a kind of a clear cut. A lot of your houses, it, ignore your house the next time you're, you're there, which should be soon, right? And just look at it in the forest canopy, right? That's what wildlife sees. They're not really scared of your house or your vinyl siding or your car. They, they really seek out food and cover. And if you look at your house site 
as just a clearing in the woods, then you'll see what I'm talking about. That's why you see so many deer. They're not equally distributed across the landscape. That's why you see so many birds. They're not equally distributed across the landscape. We think they are because we assume, hey, if they're in my yard, well, they're throughout that whole big woods out there. That's not true. You're probably seeing most of the deer. You're probably seeing all of the rabbits. I have tons of <laughs> rabbits where I live. There's no rabbits in the woods, but I have them all by my wood pile and everything else. My kids are constantly looking at robin's eggs. I think they killed one by accident the other day. Darn it. I told them you can't do that. You know? Right, and I, I'm telling you, I wouldn't try to go rabbit hunting in your neck of the woods. I wouldn't even think to go there. But yeah. there they are, right? Um, went for that hike, right? We covered 10 miles. We saw three deer. Uh, yeah. One of them was at 3,200 feet, which wow. surprised the crap out of me. That's pretty cool. I jumped it, and it probably didn't think I was going to be coming through the woods either. <laughs> was, that the, was that the big uh, mountain buck? Who knows, because it was gone in a flash. Oh. Pro- probably lives up there, but... The one we, we strive to chase, right? But then, you know, then you go driving home and you see 20 on the, the drive home down the river valley, right? Yeah. And that's not uncommon. But to walk 10 miles and only see three. But that's a good example. They're not equally distributed because they can't support that high density everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's just not as much growing. We have more sunlight in our yards. There's more trees growing in the open uh, edges. Mm-hmm. Yep. More diversity of things that matter to them. First time I realized this. You know, you can learn something in a book, and you can go to school and learn about forestry and all this. But, you know, when you see a forest fire, you see this, and you're like, wow, there really is a lot of wildlife. It's noisy here compared to the big woods. But another time, if in line with what you were just saying, was when I used to hike from from Margerville to Gardner. And a lot of it is Wildlife Management Unit 3A. It's Slide Mountain Wilderness Area, mostly. And I, I there was times I never saw a deer. I'd see bear. I'd see bear. But I tell you what, when you got to that first big valley, which is the Rondau Valley, it was pretty amazingly different mm. how much wildlife there was as you got to that edge, you know? Yeah. And uh, you saw everything. Deer, bear, tons of birds. It's noisy. You, and you would notice, you'd be like, wow, it's like loud down here. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, the birds, the morning chorus. Yeah. Yeah, you know you've been in the woods too long when you're looking at a track and you're like, "What is that?" It's a cow track. <laughs> Come on, dummy. <laughs> huh? What? What? What is this? Because <laughs> you know you've been in the woods too long thinking about whatever you're thinking about for seven seven days. That was the first year. That was the longest I was ever out. It was like six nights, seven days, and I got down to the Rondout Valley and I was like, "Oh, oh come on, it's a cow track. Come on." All right. <laughs> you know. That's crazy. To be fair, it was in an area I wasn't expecting to see a cow, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic. We are deciphering the difference between clear-cutting versus land-clearing, a term, clear-cutting, that we feel has been butchered quite a bit. So let's talk about um, the uses of clear-cutting. We kind of already did, but let me just rehash it. If you haven't noticed, the most edible plants seem to require the silvicultural technique of clear-cutting or burning. But, you know, and it makes sense. If you're going to create a really nutritious food like a chestnut or – chestnut's not totally clear-cutting. It's more like a shelter wood, but I'm not even going to get into that. 
or a raspberry or a blackberry or a blueberry, you got to have sunlight. It just takes energy from the sun to create all those carbohydrates, right? Mm-hmm. So there is that. Um, also, are the younger age classes, that's a lot of plant material for browsing deer. And I think a lot of our issues with deer is just that we're not cutting enough and they are starving. So we're going to see a lot more pressure on where there are openings, which is... Our houses, our yardscapes. Yeah. And roadsides and gardens and farms, right? Especially as there's fewer farms going forward. So historically, we got really lucky with wildlife. Um, I know a lot of people want to give credit all to our game laws, and and they do deserve some credit. I'm not going to say they don't. But to ignore mass farm abandonment across New York State beginning in the late 1800s, which mimics a clear cut, right? You have all these farms, dairy farms, whatnot, and over a 50-year period they're abandoned. It's just overwhelmed. If there wasn't many deer back then to begin with, but if there were, it overwhelmed them anyway. They could not browse that much. Mm-hmm. So we got so much diversity after that wave. And then on the coattails of that, following behind, is all the wildlife in succession. So real quick, John, like what do you start with on that trophic scale of uh, as the forest starts to grow back, what, do you start, what animals do you get back first? Well, your yard that you just described says a little bit of it. You'll have small mammals. You're going to have uh, your rabbits. Um, some as the shrub life comes, right? Then you're going to have something like rough grouse. I'm thinking more game species right now. But uh, that came in before. As it was an open field, you probably had uh, bobolinks and meadowlarks, and then followed by um, more uh, intermediate uh, warblers coming through and as shrubland comes around, and then on up from there. And then you you took an Audubon course recently, didn't you, for forest management? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they've got a new initiative for uh, certified Audubon certified foresters that I went through their program. What the, well, how was that? What did they have to say? You know I, know, I know you can't, like, summarize the whole thing, but yeah. um, you had some takeaways. Takeaways were that the biggest takeaway is that what I started to mention earlier is we have plenty of a good thing, and that's that old forest type. Yeah. I'm not saying old growth forest because it's not, but it's mature mature hardwoods that are largely contiguous right it's right. most of the northeast big trees big trees that expand thousands of acres closed as a, canopies closed to canopies as a, as a whole uh but even birds that need that uh habitat type like wood thrush was a main example of this course are in decline how can that be right well the findings are that even those mature forest uh, loving birds uh, are having poor reproductive success because they need high protein sources at very specific life stages right after hatching and fledging that these adults take their young to to feed on what's the high protein insects that come from openings right um, and and young forest is is needed is the the bottleneck so birds that need young forest are in decline because we have less and less of it and some of these specific mature forest birds are also in decline because there's some life stages that require young forest. So you're saying they may take cover in an older forest, some of these birds, but they may feed in another age class. Yeah, but also maybe not even the adult, just the young. So we're seeing poor fledgling success. So we can't even 
create that next age class of bird species, right, to right. even reproduce again. When we think about old, old, uh, mature, forest-loving birds, we're really just thinking about them where they spend most of their day or where they nest. Uh, so they nest in a mature canopy or they nest in a young forest or on the forest floor in a mature forest, right? Right. Um, so that's where they need to nest. But if that young that's nesting there can't even make it to an adulthood stage to reproduce again, it was worthless. What mattered? Nothing. Right? That's where we measure fitness. You know, the whole Darwin thing, you know, uh, survival of the fittest. Well, it's not talking about muscular fitness. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about going to the gym and getting physically fit. It's talking about, you know, one to one. You, Your parents creating you and then you breeding. That's fitness right. of one. Right? You just... Uh, completed the cycle. Oh, that's interesting. So if you're going to use that definition, then deer are not fit in many ways. Some ways, because a doe used to drop, what, two to three fawns not too long ago? Yeah. I now mean, it's, what, one, one, one and a half? As long as she technically reproduces and replaces herself, yeah, she's fit. So she's got multiple years to do it. So. Right. But, yeah, yeah, in a, in a good, uh, in a healthy forest, it's uh, got a lot of... Um, yeah. Food for deer, you're going to see twins being the norm. You very rarely see triplets anymore with no, deer. I can't remember the last time I saw triplets. Yeah. Now, when I grew up in New Paltz in the 90s and 80s, you saw a lot of triplets. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense because New Paltz was a gardener, town of Gardner, really, was recently abandoned fields. A lot of eastern red cedar and young plants everywhere and fruit trees from a legacy from farming and tons of briar bushes that you'd walk through. So now what do you see and what do you hear about for a uh, species that's on an uprise? We have mature forests yeah. that's repetitively, you hear triplets, quadruplets. I'm even seeing some uh, newspaper articles of quintuplets, five? Bears. Bears. Yeah. And they love mature forests now. They thrive in a mature... Why? Because they can climb for the food. It doesn't really matter where it is. They'll they can get, get to the greenery. They can get to it. Yep. Right. And... Uh, so they're they're very healthy if you see threes, fours, fives. You're saying obviously like we know bears feed on acorns and cherries. Do they feed it on anything else on a tree? Oh well, yeah, I mean they're gonna they're generalists. Yeah. So they're gonna feed on anything they can buds. No, I don't not a browser <laughs> though, so <laughs> no. Leaves. Uh, not that I know of, but, uh, you know, ironically, we learned on this show, Larry Bufaro was on um, a few years ago. He's a retired Region 4 bear biologist. But um, I learned from that show that their first source of food when they uh, come out of the den is skunk cabbage. Oh, yeah. Because there's that. really nothing else. They're coming out mid-March, end of March, and that's the only thing erupting from the ground at that point. Grubs. Yeah. Um, probably, I mean, they're a big raccoon is the way I look at a bear. Hmm. If they found eggs in a tree, I'm sure that's gone. You know, just about anything, I would think. Yeah, yeah, whatever they can come across. My chickens. Your chickens this time of year, fawns. Yeah. You know, uh, f- for the first two weeks of their life, uh, bears are 50% of their mortality. Yeah, a lot of people are shocked to hear that. Yep, it's not just coyote. Coyotes later on. If they can get them late, that's fine. But, yeah, it's bears now because the fawn's helpless. It can't move. And Everybody blames the poor coyotes on everything. I know. Meanwhile, it's the bear jacking up all the fawns and my chickens. Man. Anyway, um, I just want to leave off before we take a break. So the other use of a clear cut is not just to provide all this early successional kind of flora and fauna, but to start a stand over. So right back to nuts and bolts forestry. A lot of our stands, and we're going to talk about this next, 
have been high graded. And when your forest is in that purgatory, and you're, it's stocked with a lot of poor quality, or as we would call them, UGS, unacceptable growing stock, it's time to start it over. And that's what we'll talk about next on From the Forest. Tonight's show is clear cutting versus land clearing. You're just tuning in. You're listening to From the Forest. That's uh, it's Frankie Valley, man. That sounds no joke. Frankie Valley's no joke. All right? hmm. You can laugh all you want. Okay. I like Frankie Valley. All right. When I was little, I used to think it was a girl. I didn't realize people did acapella. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> it no. blew my mind as a six-year-old. I was like, "That's a guy." <laughs> all right. How? Amazing. Wow. No, but it's pretty awesome. Anyway. Tonight on From the Forest, we're talking about clear-cutting versus land clearing. And um, the reason why we did this is because often clear-cutting gets confused with land clearing. Um, not that there is there is a purpose for land clearing. You know, if you need to make a farm or you don't want vegetation to come back, you want to remove wildlife pretty much, and you want livestock or you want a garden, 
The garden is a land clearing for the most part. You're, you're, you know, I, yes, you do have some vegetables in there, but ultimately they're only the vegetables exactly that you want. Anything human habitat is land clearing. I mean, you're living in a house, and we can say, well, it was a field before I built the house. Well, before it was a field, it was a forest. Somebody cleared it. Right. You know, it was cleared. Yeah. So clear cutting and selective cutting. Mm. This is another one. So, well, we get this, this – I hear this a lot, um, whether it's in the media or whatnot, as well. At least they didn't clear cut it. They selectively cut it instead. It sounds good because it sounds like someone thought about what tree came out yeah. and they made the right decision based on you know, hopefully science is what I think people are thinking. Right. They weren't just willy-nilly cutting trees. They just they selected them. I mean it, it makes sense. You would think that's better. It would intuitively make sense if you don't know about the topic. But actually, if you're going to do anything, just willy-nilly is even better. <laughs> yeah, it can be. It could be. Yeah. I know. Depends um, on what stand you're in. But Yeah. So I was at a town board meeting. Actually, I think it was a planning board meeting years ago. And some towns actually want to know the numbers of trees cut. Or more insanely. Regardless of their quality or species. Well, I heard one even worse. They want to know how many trees remain after a harvest. Yeah, that's pretty Like amazing. you want to count trees. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Like we're, we're taking like less than a percent. So what the – I think it's well-intentioned. I really do. But it sounds like selective cutting. So let's get into what selective cutting is and why it's probably worse than clear cutting. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah, and when I say that on consultations, like, well, it would be better if they clear cut it. What? Yeah. They almost throw you off the property. I don't blame them. I'd throw myself off. But anyway, selective cutting is not – a legitimate silvicultural practice. Back at school, you'd get a big, fat zero for saying selective cutting. All right, There's selection cutting. We're not even going to talk about that tonight. That's an uneven, uneven age silvicultural practice. But what we're talking about is selective cutting. And what it's also a common name is diameter limit cutting or high grading. Yep. So long story short, and this is a big secret in forestry. Don't tell anyone. All right? You ready? Yeah. You ready? Secrets. I love them. Oh, yeah. The T, they say now. The what? The T. I learned this the other day. This is what the kids are saying what now. What are you talking about? It's like, you know, I've got some tea. You want to hear it? I'm out of coffee. I don't know if I can. <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's it. Like, that's what they say. Like they yeah, got. What does they, it stand for? It's like a secret. Like, uh, I'm going to tell you something nobody else knows and... You're gonna be you're gonna be my, my my zone now because it ends with T. I don't like. I know I have no idea. So I don't know <laughs> if it's uppercase or lowercase. No, I have no idea. All right. Maybe they drink tea over it. I don't know what the kids do. Not drinking tea. You're crazy. <laughs> uh, well, you got some tea for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got some tea. So here's the tea. Larger trees aren't necessarily older. Bam. What? Crinkle <laughs> on the paper. It's done. Yeah. No, that's true. No, it's true. So the next time you go out in your woods, if you don't believe me, just, just go for a walk seat tonight. And if you see, like, two Norway spruce trees, it's really easy to see with evergreens because it just stands out more. It's harder to see with hardwoods, although you can. But, okay, yeah, the next time you see a Norway spruce plantation, like on the side of the reservoir this or road. Square bound by stone walls. Right. They're all planted on the same day, probably. Their heights are all the same. 
mm-hmm. pretty much. But yet, their diameters are different. Yeah. How is that possible? Mm, who knows? Magic. Right. Because some of them are getting bit more sunlight. Right. right. They have bigger crowns, more, more needles, photosynthesis, carbon dioxide, water, sunlight, fat and happy. So if you only take out the largest trees and you leave the smaller ones, you're not leaving the young ones to grow. You're actually just leaving the runts, the poor quality, the slower growing, the ones most susceptible to insects and diseases. So, for instance, a lot of um, when we have the forest tent caterpillar, the worms come back here <laughs> soon and, and defoliate a lot of our sugar maple stands. Yep. It's worse in areas that have been high graded because those trees left behind were already in poor shape. They got small crowns. They got no energy to resist insect damage, and they go to hell. Right. And at that point, I'm kind of glad because it might as well start to stand over maybe. But usually usually not all of them die. Right. You know, too and bad. Still shade intermediate. Comes back beach. And right. Black birch. So this, you know, this can be worse than clear cutting since your forest, after a selective cut, is stuck in forest purgatory and stocked with runts. That's why I cringe when I hear the towns talk about numbers. Without any regard to crowns, how healthy the crowns are, the structure of the trees, the species, what goals those make, which I don't expect them to do that. That's a lot of nuance. That's a lot of gray area. And really should have a forester or someone go out there and make those decisions. Maybe not the building code enforcement officer. I don't know. I mean, you wouldn't send me to look at a building. Man, that's <laughs> a bad idea. Wouldn't want to. I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> It'd be fine. <laughs> oh, this is, a, this is a bearing wall? You're kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Right? Yeah. So, anyway. Um, so, even worse, there isn't enough sunlight. When you do a selective cut, there's not even enough sunlight to start to stand over. So, you don't even get regeneration. You get like a smorgasbord of fern hell, if you're above 1,000 feet, generally speaking. And New York fern is something the deer don't eat. Blocks out germinating seedlings. I know it looks pretty, but... It's not good for forest regeneration. Or if you're below 1,000 feet like I am, you get Japanese stillgrass, one or the other. They're both pretty invasive when there's too many deer and not enough sunlight. And you're only managing for trees and shrubs that can tolerate shade, mm-hmm. which are mostly not that edible. I love maple trees, but for wildlife, they're just not that good. Ash, not that good. Hemlock, eh, it's got its uses as a wintering yard. Black birch, not so good. Yellow birch, not so good. It's not that, that that nothing uses them. It's that they pale in comparison to, say, you know, as we said before, a lot of berries, fruit and nuts, whatnot. Right. Cover, stuff like that. So anyway, you got anything to add before we go on to the second thing here? No, keep going. No, that, really? That was, that was good. Oh, all right. I was hoping you could say something. Oh, well, I can, <laughs> but no, you did a good, good job explaining that. Uh, I mean, I was anecdotally, I was just on a property yesterday, and uh, it took a took a long time to for the landowner to actually tell me exactly what he wanted me to educate him on. But um, he finally told me that the last person he met with was a local logger, which is great. I hope he cuts it. But the local loggers came in and said, uh, "Yeah, I'm just going to come in, and anything 16 inches and above, that's all we're going to cut. So you still have a forest, and uh, we're going to be very selective. Only 16 inches and above." Well, hold on. <laughs> hold the phone. Because the forest that I'm looking at, everything 16 inches and above is red oak, some poor quality white oak. Take that out anyway, but red oak, right? right. What's smaller diameter than that? Guess. 
Red Maple. Red Maple, American Beach, and a, mid, a mid-story of Hemlock that, that is in an area, doesn't have it yet, but is susceptible to Hemlock right. Woolly Adelgid. So, sure, I mean, to someone who doesn't know anything, maybe that yeah. sounds good. And I'm sure there was a little carrot ding, you know, dangling in front of the nose of, of numbers. Yeah. Because it's red oak. You know, I bet I can make you 10,000, 30,000, whatever. Right. So, um, and then, you know, what often happens is, well, you know, typical logging intervals, 15, 15, 20 years. So yeah. they see, well, they see that carrot of, well, $30,000 every Every 15, 20 years sounds really good. But that's not what happens because this specific stand, there would be no return interval. It wouldn't right. happen. There's absolutely nothing to come back to. You're reducing the growth. You're not going to have that same growth. You wouldn't have the same species. You're removing an entire species composition. It's going to come back mainly the beech and red maple. But to say that hemlock takes over, it gets hemlock woolly adelgid, that all dies. And then it goes to even worse quality red maple and beech. Now you have a beach forest. Ah, uh, there's a lot of beach for that reason. I mean, you have the beach bark disease, but then it's an undesirable species. It's left behind. You have beach hell. Yeah. So that's what I ran into yesterday, and we talked about hiring a forester. And, you know, first off, we talked about this, what we're speaking of. And, yeah. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe some more intensive cutting is necessary if you still yeah. want to do a harvest and maybe attempt a regeneration cut. It's know. tough. See if so, it work. I don't know. To be fair to loggers, because loggers are some of the best people I feel out there, the most hard, hardest working people that do the most dangerous job on land. And um, some foresters will high grade too, though. Oh, yeah. And See to be it. honest with you, I, it's more forgivable for a logger to high grade because he is risking way more. You know, and he's doing all the capital. He's got the skitter. He's got a lot of heavy equipment and a lot of sweat going on in there. And uh, so it's. I think it's more forgivable. But a forester, and I've known a few that do high grade really intensively. Some are are retired and gone. It's not forgivable because they do know. And that's what you pay a forester to do, right? To be the intermediary intermediary between you and the logger and mm -hmm. you write the contract it's not really the logger's role to do that he's just he's there to cut that's his job he's not there to to you know manage and put it on a contract and do all you know um put it out the bid and everything that's not his job mm -hmm. so it, there are foresters too that will so you know we can't catskill forest association can recommend foresters but one last thing is that this is extremely common High grading, as much as I wish there was more fires and stuff like that, and, you know, I talk about maple coming in because of the lack of cutting, a lot of maple is a result of high grading because it doesn't cut enough and, you know, it basically fosters more shade-tolerant trees like sugar maple, red maple, poor-quality beech. And this is exactly why CFA was created in 1982. So that's how abundant it is. And it was the combat high grading. That was that's in our mission statement. And uh, so it's extremely common. It's probably the most common forest practice, I would say. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. At least here in the Catskill region. So that brings us to the second part. We, we I think we define clear cutting and what it is and what it is not. Right? Well, one more thing. I think right. what people get hung up on, at least my generation, is I remember from grade school over and over over pounding it in my head that 
clear-cutting is bad because we're clear-cutting the rainforest, clear-cutting the rainforest, clear-cutting the rainforest, desertification, clear-cutting the rainforest. Okay, so we found an example where, well, that's not even clear-cutting, right? That's land clearing. Why are they clearing? I know. Agriculture. Well, you know what? We did it, too. We did it, too. We we had our our ag days as well. We went through that. We went through that. So um, I'm not even going to get into, you know, ethics of who to tell what why but that's where it comes from to now my generation are buying houses owning land and these are the people the catskill forest association that you and i talk to on our day jobs are hearing from right um i think that's where it's stemming from so maybe uh, it's time to you know change the education model a little bit get away from a little closer to home than the amazon and let's talk about at least talk about united states forests, maybe even the northeast Absolutely. So here's the other misconception about clear cutting. It doesn't really happen. It's not a thing. Mm. And here's why. So the second part is the scope. Why is high grading or selective cutting so common? Because we have only a high grade market. You can hire a logger or a forester to manage really fat, tall, limbless, sugar maple, red oak. What's another one, John? Um, High grade species, right? The black Black walnut, if you could find it. Stuff like that. White ash, if it's growing well and still alive. Yep. Yeah. What's a high-grade market? A high-grade market is for what? Furniture, um, veneer, So the flooring. Wo- the wood market, what I was told, flip-flops about every 10 years with a world market, a white wood market, a dark wood market. If your house was built in the 80s and 90s, you've got cherry and oak. If it's built in the 2000s, you've got maple and ash. Right. Your cabinets. So think about that when you go home and, and stare at your cabinets and know what year your house is built. Right. Mine are hickory. It's somewhere in between. I'm an 80, 1989 house. What the heck happened? But anyway, uh, so that's your high-grade market at the times. You see, well, cherry was high in the 90s. And, you know, I made a log truck going down the road. It was worth $10,000 in the 1990s. Well, to the landowner, right, on stump, it's like, well, maybe it was. But that was all high-graded trees. Absolutely. So clear-cutting may be confused with land-clearing, but it's also perceived as occurring often. It doesn't. Here's why. Clear-cutting is extremely rare for the same reasons that high-grading is extremely abundant, like I just said. High-grading, high-grade species, high-grade products. We have that. What we don't have is low-grade, our low-grade markets. Paper, pulp, firewood is insignificant on influencing the forests, and uh, biomass, pellets, we don't have those in Hudson Valley or Catskills in most of New York State. We do not have low-grade markets. So, therefore, you got to pay to cut those smaller trees. Right. That's why they don't happen, ever. It's not, you know, someone may tell you differently, like, oh, you know, you just want to selectively cut. And, well, it's because it costs labor to cut a 4-inch tree mm-hmm. or a 6-inch tree or an 8-inch tree. That tree can't pay its way out of the woods. A 16-inch sugar maple or cherry can, you know. So, I don't know. What do you think? Well, to put it kind of in perspective, a good friend of mine that I've worked with for a little while, um, went to college with. He was a, uh, his degree was forest tech, right? He says, John, I've been working for years now, and I thought I got into forest technology because I, he was a machinery guy. That's all. That's why he loved. He wanted to drive skitters and run feller bunchers and and big machinery, right? He's like, I, my first feller buncher I ever ran was in Kansas. 
I said, Kansas? Kansas. <laughs> Not in the Northeast? He goes, no, it was in Kansas. My first feller buncher job was in Kansas. I got hired to clear fence rows of, of uh, it was growing, I think, black walnut. But they were clearing fence rows to create more agricultural land. <laughs> so that might tell you exactly how much, because a feller buncher is going to be the tool for a, a clear-cutting job, right? It's right. very efficient. It's mechanized. You can sit in a cab safely, fell high volumes of trees, and then stack them in piles. It's efficient. So that'll be the tool for the job. And if even if the foresters are not even utilizing this machinery in the Northeast, what does that tell you? Yeah. Not happening. So typical low-grade um, cutting includes any crooked or branchy trees or smaller diameter trees or less valuable species. An example, hemlock, spruce, aspen, etc. Um, so, yeah, those trees stay behind. They're not leaving. Those forked trees, small crown Q-tip trees. So, summary, you can find someone today or tomorrow to cut your fat, straight maple, cherry, and oak. Uh, you might not be able to find someone to cut smaller or poor quality trees. And since we don't have a low-grade market, it costs landowners to cut every tree to create a true clear cut where you want vegetation to grow immediately up that fosters shade intolerant plants or younger plants or improves wildlife. This is probably an old number. It's probably more now, but it may cost over $300 an acre, in fact, to cut those less valuable trees to meet all those forest management goals we were just talking about. So that's all I'm saying. I'll leave off on the green lie. You know about the this term there john yeah i know about the green line you want to explain it the green lie is say you're driving down route 28 right through the catskill mountains and you see those green hillsides all around you and they look green you assume they're healthy but as soon as you walk in and take a closer look it's all a lie it's, it's lies. <laughs> lies. My whole life is lies. <laughs> no, I mean, if, with a with a walk with an educated forester, it might uh, quickly bring some examples. Now, I'm not saying this is all woods, but you know, you could quickly find examples of high graded forests, uh, just forests that are uh, susceptible to insect pests and diseases, and just really, it's a lie. They don't just because they're green, they don't doesn't mean they're healthy. Yeah, you're just looking at the trees left behind from a harvest. And usually people will high grade before they turn it over to the next owner to recoup taxes and liquidate the stand. Very typical before selling to the city of New York or the state of New York and also another landowner. So, you know, and maybe it happened 10 years before you got it, um, but the best quality trees have been taken out. Right, and the effects so, are long-lasting. Yeah, there's a forest there, but it's literally the le least quality trees. Hence... The green lie. And that doesn't just mean least quality for commercial timber purposes, but also could mean least quality for wildlife, too. Absolutely. So, lastly, uh, I only got about two and a half minutes. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, clear cutting is really bad on soil erosion and stuff. It's, it's not. Um, there's a book, Riparian Buffers of Northeast or whatever. It's, it's the book that. Um, I think, you know, New York City DP probably even praises. But basically, even a clear-cut, a bad forestry job pales in comparison to to its impacts on water quality through sedimentation compared to a farm. <laughs> All right? Not to bash farmers. I don't want to do that. I like farmers. Uh, we need farms. But bare mineral soil, especially if you're plowing, right? If you're doing no-till, I guess. I don't know. 
But whenever there's bare mineral soil exposed, that's when you get issues. And in a forestry job, the only issues you get really is in the roads where bare mineral soil is, is uh, turned over. But a cutting does not really produce much erosion sedimentation because the roots are there. There's still plants there, and the plants are coming fast and furious. Right. Yeah, no, they're coming in, in days even. It's going to be you know small uh, herbaceous forbs and shrubs and small little things, but yeah. eventually you're going to have trees. Hey, here's the thing. We take the saw log or we take the wood. We don't take the, we don't take the roots. We don't take the top usually. Yeah. So these are all things that are now either within the soil, the roots, or on top of the soil that are going to slow down any type of rainwater movement, and right. you don't get erosion. Like when they put hay bales down on the side of roads, you've seen that, mm-hmm. to slow it down. Yeah, a treetop is going to do the same. The roots are going to do the same. So, yeah, that's all the time we got. Wow. I know. It's, it's over. On From the Forest, if you missed the show... We were trying to decipher clear cutting from land clearing. We feel clear clear cutting is just a butchered term, but it is a legitimate silvicultural practice, and selective cutting is not. Don't get a zero. If you want black cherry cabinets again, we have to do clear cutting. That's right. All right. Take care. See you next week. Good night. See wind it blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear Upon his mantle shining the face of one so dear Loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom in the forest She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name And then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games In an old house on a hillside in some Garden town where the river runs down from the forest. With a mighty roar, the big jet soars above the canyon streets, and the con men con, but life goes on for the city never sleeps. And to an old forgotten soldier, the dawn will come no more. 
for the old man has come home. 